I greet you in the high and holy name of our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is here today through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is moving up and down every row, touching every receptive heart. Jesus promised where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And we've got more than two or three here. And he is here in the midst of us. I'm about to read scripture from the Old and New Testaments, the Old Testament lesson from Numbers chapter 13, the New Testament from Philippians 4. A little background on the Numbers 13 passage. The children of Israel have migrated for 40 years from slavery down in Egypt. Now they're on the border with Canaan, the promised land. God orders Moses, the leader, to send out 12 spies to reconnoiter, to find out what's over there in Canaan, bring back a report. And our scripture lesson for today has to do with the report of those 12 spies. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And then the New Testament lesson from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. St. Paul wrote, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
Many years ago, when I was a rookie pastor, I was assigned to two small churches on the north side of Columbia. And one day I was riding through a subdivision near one of those churches, and I saw a moving van, and it was obvious that a new family was moving into the community. So I made a note, mental note, of the address. Next afternoon, I dropped by there intending to welcome the family to the community and to invite them to our church. I went to the side door, the one all opening onto the carport, and I rang the doorbell, and the moment I rang the bell, I heard a deep bass growl like thunder, and the hair on the back of my neck stood straight out. And I glanced over my shoulder, and about 30 feet away on the other side of the carport was a huge German shepherd dog with malignant glowing eyes and pearly white teeth. Very slowly and very gradually, I began backing away from that door in the direction of my car, speaking words of pastoral comfort to the dog. The dog kept exactly the same distance between me and him, still in a crouched position, almost daring me to make a sudden move. It was a Baptist dog. I never in my life have I seen a dog that had such a problem with a Methodist preacher as this one did. By the grace of God, I made it to my car, jumped in, slammed the door, said a prayer of thanksgiving, breathed a sigh of relief. The fear had uh, exhausted my supply of energy. Uh, and so I wasn't good for much the rest of the day. Went on home, uh, didn't do much work, did make one additional phone call. I, I phoned my good friend, the local Baptist preacher, told him that a new family had moved in, and I was pretty sure they were Baptist. The fact that we Methodist and Baptist can kid each other is a sure sign of our mutual love and respect. The fear that I felt that day is a common commodity in our culture. All you have to do is look at your morning newspaper or turn on the television news and you'll find all kinds of things to be anxious about. There's a North Korean dictator out there who is feverishly working to develop a nuclear weapon and a delivery system and his desire is to be able to drop a nuclear bomb right in the middle of the USA. And that ought to make us anxious. While the stock market is high right now, it can gyrate like a roller coaster, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and that can affect your 401k. The animosity between the major political parties in America is so intense, they can't seem to cooperate about anything. And though the ISIS caliphate has been wrecked, thankfully, we know that Islamic terrorists are all over the world and they are plotting this very day to kill off as many of us as we can. And if they ever get their hands on some kind of nuclear device, the danger will rise exponentially. Five years ago, a poll was taken of 20-year-olds, millennials, and they were asked this question, what is your primary feeling about life 60% of them said fear, fear. 
And I've seen nothing in the last five years that would cause me to believe that uh, the spread of fear and anxiety is any less today. Yes, there are reasonable causes in this world for concern, and we Christians don't play pretend games. We look reality straight in the face. We're not a bunch of Pollyannas, but we know a truth that is bigger than fear. We have a Bible set that says that the one who is in us, that is Christ, is greater than the one that is in the world, and that is Satan. And we believe the word that the angel Gabriel brought to Virgin Mary when he said, nothing is impossible with God. And so the purpose of this message I'm bringing you today is help us overcome fear and also become what St. Paul called us to be, more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Our scripture lesson today points out the stark difference between fearful and faithful people. Let me set the scene for you. Again, remind you that one of 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus, about 600,000 Israelites migrated from Egyptian slavery across a hostile desert to Canaan, the promised land, currently Israel in the West Bank. And when they came to the border, God ordered the leader, Moses, to send out 12 spies to reconnoiter, see what the land was like. And those 12 brought back their report after 40 days. They were unanimous in saying, we've never seen a place as productive as this. Look at the fruit we've brought back with us. I mean, have you ever seen fruit that large? I mean, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Ah, but that's when the unanimity broke down. Ten of the 12 spies said, yeah, it's a wonderful land over there, but there's a bunch of giants who live there. They live in fortified cities, and there is no way in the world that we could push them out. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, had a minority report. They said, we should go in at once. We can, we can take over that place. I mean, God has promised us to us, and the reason we can is God is with us. He will provide the power to do it. But the ten fearful spies disagreed vehemently. They said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Why, compared to those giants, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Now, notice that comment, because it is so revealing. They were not saying that those big people over in Canaan had said to them, hey, you little fellows look like grasshoppers to us. No. The grasshopper comment came from the 10 spies themselves. In other words, it was a self-imposed evaluation. The grasshopper mentality always begins with a low estimate of ourselves. And all of us do this from time to time. Sometimes we, like those spies, get overcome by our fears and our anxieties, and we begin to see ourselves as weak and puny. And then we assume that other people see us in the same way. And that is a formula for futility. I love the story about the Texan who traveled to Australia to visit a ranch over there. And you know Texans, some of you may be Texans. You know, Texans, um, they've never seen anything as big or as wonderful as Texas. You know? And this Texan had that view. 
He went to visit a large ranch in Australia, several thousand acres. And he looked it over, took a tour of it, and he said to the uh, Australian host, he said, well, this is nice. You got, a, you got a good spread here, but I could put your entire spread in one corner of my ranch back in Texas. They reviewed, they looked over his cattle, and he said, the Texan said, uh, they're healthy, they're well-fed, but they're not nearly as big as my longhorns back in Texas. About that time, a kangaroo came bounding by, and it sort of startled the Texan. He said, what in tarnation is that? And his Australian host said, y'all don't have grasshoppers out there in Texas? Well, a grasshopper, even if he is big as a kangaroo, is still a grasshopper. And when our fears and anxieties are large and we doubt the sufficiency of our primary source, we are grasshoppers for sure. We just as well start hopping around. A primary sponsor of the grasshopper mentality is the devil himself. You know, Satan is the father of lies and he is a masterful salesman. And he tries to sell us on three persuasive lies. First, he tells us that we are not smart enough or educated enough to accomplish much. With, some, with sarcasm, he says to us, who do you think you are? You don't have an advanced degree in this field or that field. There are a whole lot of people out there who are smarter than you are. Don't you know that? That's his approach to us, to teach us to belittle ourselves to not have confidence. But the word of God contradicts that lie from Satan. St. Paul said, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And writing to the church at Corinth, St. Paul said, not many of you were wise by human standards, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Isn't it ironic that the man considered by most historians to have been the greatest president in U.S. history, Abraham Lincoln, never even went to high school, much less college. Ah, but the man could read. And he read the Bible through cover to cover countless times. He allowed the Word of God to saturate his soul. He quoted the Bible in almost all of his major addresses. He trusted more in the wisdom of God than in the wisdom of man. And that was a key to his greatness. Satan's second lie is that we don't have enough ability or strength to accomplish much. And here, there's a little bit of truth in the lie. And Satan often takes a little bit of truth and distorts it, twists it into a lie. It is true that if we have nothing going for us except our strength alone, ah, we won't accomplish anything of eternal significance. But that's not a problem because the strength of God Almighty is available. And indeed, we are truly effective only when we allow the power of God to flow through us. St. Paul even went so far as to brag about his weakness. St. Paul wrote... Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Indeed, every Christian should memorize Philippians 4, verse 13. 
It has been called the 10 most powerful words in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, many of us saw the opposite of the grasshopper mentality if we were watching two months ago the Peach Bowl football game between the University of Central Florida and Auburn University. UCF won, completing a perfect season, 12-0. And if you were watching that game, you couldn't help but notice that the star linebacker for UCF had only one hand. His name, Jakeem Griffith. He and his brother, Jaquiel, stars on that defensive team. Jaquiel was born with a congenital birth defect that caused extreme pain in his hand. The doctors tried all kinds of remedies. Nothing worked. And finally, the painful decision was made that when the boy was four years old, his left hand was amputated. Even before then, Jaquiel had a passion for football, and that Amputation did not dampen his enthusiasm at all. Nevertheless, at every level, grammar school, junior high, high school, adults and many coaches told him, there is no way you can succeed in football with one hand. But Jakeem was reared in a family that did not allow the word can't in their vocabulary. And then two years ago, UCF got a new coaching staff, and they gave Jakeem a chance. And all this year, he demonstrated to the world that a one-handed linebacker is not handicapped, and indeed, he can be a star, and I've got a feeling he's going to reveal the same thing in the National Football League. Our lack of ability or strength is not a limitation on our unlimited God. There's a third lie that Satan tries to sell us, and it is this. Has he ever whispered this in your ear? Look at your history of failures. Nobody with your dismal record can accomplish too much. Now, when I hear that lie, I thank God for Simon Peter, the big fisherman. Because on the night before Jesus gave his life for us on a cross, Simon Peter was a colossal failure. When those troops, the police, the armed guards, led by, guided by the traitor, Jesus Iscariot, came to the Mount of Olives and arrested Jesus. All of the disciples fled, except for Peter and John. They followed at a distance as Jesus was taking to the, taken to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. They took Jesus inside. The mob was gathered in the courtyard. It was a cold night. They built a charcoal fire, and they stood around the fire warming their hands, and Peter stood there, and he listened. And I can imagine that someone in the crowd said, oh, we got that so-and-so from Nazareth now. We've got him. And someone else said, I'll bet you a denarius that he'll be dead within 24 hours. We're going to execute that guy. And someone else probably said, and we're going to go after his followers too. We're going to round them up. And as Simon Peter stood there warming his hands and listening, fear began to creep up his spine. Have you ever noticed that if you hang out with unbelievers, their unbelief can seep into you? And at that moment, 
the least prestigious and powerful person in the entire culture, a slave girl, walked up to Simon Peter and said, hey, aren't you one of the friends of that guy they just arrested? And Simon Peter said, no, I don't even know him. Over the next couple of hours, as he stood there, Simon Peter stood there warming his hands by the campfire. Several other people came up to him and said, hey, you're a Galilean. Weren't you with this Jesus? Each time, Simon Peter answered more vehemently, I don't even know him for heaven's sakes. Leave me alone. I could care less about the guy. And the third time he denied him, off in the distance, he heard a rooster crow. And suddenly he remembered that 24 hours earlier, Jesus had predicted, Simon, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. He was cut to the heart. And so he ran off to be alone and wept bitterly. But that's not the end of the story, thank God. One week later, on the other side of resurrection, the risen Christ met those disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus cooked breakfast for them. And after breakfast, he turned to Simon Peter. Not a single word of criticism. Not a single condemnation because of his dismal failure. Instead, he just asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He gave him three chances to redeem those three awful denials. And then he appointed Simon Peter to be president of the infant church. The wimp became a warrior. Every Christian is a forgiven sinner a sinner in recovery, and that includes all of us. The way to overcome the grasshopper mentality is to remember three things, who you are, whose you are, and where your power comes from. First, who are you? You are a precious creation of God Almighty, made in His image. You are absolutely unique. He made only one in all the earth like you. Whose are you? If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are an adopted child of God Almighty. Having been ransomed by Jesus' precious blood shed on the cross for your sins. Can you be sure that you're saved and forgiven and heaven bound? Yes. But not based on feelings. Feelings are fickle. You can feel differently depending on what you had for breakfast. God wanted your assurance to be much deeper, firmer than something to do with feelings. So God inspired someone to put it in the black and white of Holy Scripture. And so in 1 John chapter 5, we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The third thing you have to know is where your power comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit planted in your heart the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And St. Paul reminded us that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. 
And one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture is Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So folks, the cure for the grasshopper mentality is not to psych yourself out into believing that you're kind of some kind of superman or superwoman. No. Indeed, if you have no resources other than your own, you're a grasshopper for sure. The cure is to remember three things. Who you are, whose you are, and where your power comes from. Now I want to ask some personal questions. And I want you to take these with you and work over them with the Lord. What challenges are you backing away from today because you're not sure you could succeed? Here we are fairly early in 2018. What would you attempt this year if you knew that God would help you? Would you develop a new skill? Would you maybe try a new vocation or work for an educational degree? Is there some person out there that you would try to win for Christ? What would you dare to try this year if you knew beyond doubt that God would furnish the needed power and wisdom? Earlier, I mentioned the two churches that I was appointed to when I was a rookie pastor. In one of those churches, there was a young man named Christy. At that time, he was 19 or 20 years old. He loved the Lord. He loved the church. He came to me one day and he said, Brother Bill, uh, I think the Lord wants me to learn to help lead in worship. I've always had this fear of speaking in front of people. And I think the Lord wants me to overcome that. And uh, would you assist me? I said, sure, Christy, I'll be glad to. Why don't you read the scripture for worship this coming Sunday? So I told him what the scripture was. I said, when I, I'll just call you down to the front at the proper time. You read the scripture. He said, fine. Following Sunday, I call him down to the front. I was looking down at my Bible, so the first sign I had that something had gone wrong was a collective gasp from the congregation. Christy just keeled over. Well, some of the men rushed to him, picked him up, placed him on the front row. One of our medical people came and checked his vital signs. They were fine. Some of the ladies brought wet washcloths, swabbed his face. And in a little while, Christy sat up. He was fine. He had just fainted from stage fright. Well, he came to see me the next week. He said, oh, Brother Bill, I'm so sorry about what happened Sunday. But he said, I've been praying about it, and the Lord wants me to overcome this with his help. And I know that if I surrender to it now, I'll never beat it. So would you give me another chance? I said, you're on, Christy. It's coming Sunday. Here's the scripture. Well, the following Sunday, as Yogi Berra would say, it was deja vu all over again. But this time, Christy never hit the floor. The, the men were ready. They caught him in midair, laid him out on the front row. Ladies brought the washcloths. He sat up in a little while. He was fine. The following week, people began to see me on the street and say, when are you going to have Christy faint again? I want to bring some of my friends to see that. <laughs> well, here's the rest of the story. Christy joined an organization called Toastmasters. It's an international organization with a chapter in every city. Small group of people who meet for a meal 
once a week, and they hear a short speech by one of their members and offer affirmation and encouragement. Within a year, Christy had become president of Columbia Toastmasters. The following year, he came to me and said, Brother Bill, I have signed up for this lay speakers course in the Methodist Church. He completed that course at the end of the year and became a certified lay speaker. Within three years, Christy was preaching in churches across the Columbia District whenever the pastor had to be away. And he was doing it joyously, effectively, and he was not fainting. Christy's courage and God's power forged a miracle. Christy is no grasshopper. He is more than a conqueror through Christ who loved him. How can you be more than a conqueror through Christ? By remembering three things, and I want you to say them with me out loud right now. First thing is who you are. Second, whose you are. And third, where your power comes from. And may God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.